Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses worth your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome. Happy Hunger Games, and may the odds be ever in your favor. I expected nothing less than for you to start the episode that way. I think it's against the law to start any podcast about the Hunger Games and not give Effie's welcome speech. Oh, well, then we're just grabbing that low-hanging fruit. (laughs) Absolutely. But hey, welcome back, Prom Party. It is the 10-year, I honestly can't believe it, this might be one of those instances where I finally start to feel old. 10-year anniversary of The Hunger Games hitting theaters. It doesn't make me feel that old, but like, I don't know. I've never really been super on board with this franchise. I've just never been like, I don't know. I was on Tumblr. <laughs> I watched oh, yeah. this first movie. Yeah, the this was definitely a Tumblr movie that got a, a lot of GIF action, but you, you mentioned that you've seen this one time previously, at least the first movie. Yeah. So what was that all about? So when I had first moved to Cleveland, I primarily hung out with a bunch of drag queens because that okay. was just the circle that I fell in in that city for a bit. And one of my roommates at the time had gotten like, I think like direct TV or something that mm-hmm. had like streaming movies 10 years ago, which was a fairly Oh, like novel. movies on demand. Kind of. Yeah. It was, it was a novel concept at the time where it's like order our sign up for our service and you get like three months of movies on demand free and they ended up like fleeing in the night and then the cable company was like sending me mail for like two or three years going you owe us money and i'm like they don't live here anymore (laughs) (laughs) so that was just a thing where he never ever paid for it he just got like the six months free and was like meh and then just never hit cancel. See, that's how they get you. Yeah. You've got to unsubscribe. Well, they eventually canceled it for me, but like, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, uh, this was one of the movies that we did watch. And so my first experience of The Hunger Games, which I had never heard of before, mm-hmm. was a rowdy screening with a bunch of drag queens. And this was also 2012, which means we hadn't normalized just turning on subtitles for literally everything. Uh-huh. So I really did not have the best idea of what was going on. <laughs> So, okay, here's the thing. There are a lot of movies that I think would be enhanced by watching it with a bunch of drag queens. I don't know if The Hunger Games is quite a movie for that situation. No, see, I, I think a good fuck-off film where you can pop yeah, in and out and exactly. shoot the shit and stuff like that. Like, that's good for it. This movie's bleak and has plot and world building. Like, we get an hour into this movie 
And I had to pause it because I had to go to the bathroom. And then we, I come back and go, we're only an hour and I feel like I've watched a whole movie already. <laughs> and we hadn't even gotten to The Hunger Games yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that that's, uh, that's trial by fire, in my opinion, of watching this movie with drag queens. I mean, I guess if you are very aware of the movie, you've already seen it a bunch of times, this could be fun with drag no queens. No one in the room had seen it at that point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not how the first watch of this movie should be, because this is far more serious uh, than, than I guess pop culture would have us believe, because this is a movie that did end up getting parodied quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're not going to even focus on that, because... It was to the point where parody films were falling off. They weren't as oh, popular. The starving games underperformed yes, or whatever. Yes. Like they, they did not become cultural juggernauts the way that the scary movie and not another teen movie did. Mm-hmm. So the starving games can fuck off. We're not going to deal with it. Cool. Uh, um, so my experience with the Hunger Games is that I read all the books mm-hmm. first off because. Because you read. Because I read. <laughs> Um, and it really resonated with me. I was in my early 20s when I read the books. And I had been writing professionally about film, specifically about horror films, for a couple of years. And when the trailers and the premise and everything became available of what The Hunger Games was about, horror fans immediately turned on this movie Mm -hmm. because they kept insisting that this was just a ripoff of Battle Royale. Uh-uh. And as somebody who was in kind of that target YA age range who actually had read the books, I would argue with people constantly. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. they're not even close to being the same thing. For those that don't know, Battle Royale is a Japanese movie where kids fight to the death. Like, that's basically the premise. Yeah. Um, It is nowhere near as involved in terms of its lore and its politics as The Hunger Games. And yet I felt like I was screaming into the void because, again, everybody else who was writing about horror at the time was a lot older than I was. Like, I was the baby of the group. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like my yelling teenage word against the, the word of a bunch of adults who didn't want to be proven wrong. So seems appropriate somehow. Yeah, right. And also (laughs) mostly men. um, So that's part of it, too. But I ended up writing a piece about how like, hey, these two movies are nothing like each other. And if you think that they're similar, then you are fundamentally misunderstanding the plot and the heart of both of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of the first time that I had this little little spark in my life of realizing, oh, I like to champion movies that a lot of people just like to shit on without doing any sort of background information on it. And it kind of led to the type of film analysis that I continue to do even to this day. Mm-hmm. And that was something I didn't really realize until I was really thinking about, like, what is my relationship with The Hunger Games? Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, no, this movie actually means a lot more to me than I remember it, despite the fact that I loved this movie when it came out. And after this rewatch, I still love it. Mm-hmm. I'll just put my cards on the table right then and there. Sure. <laughs> But before we really dive into The Hunger Games, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to The Morning Announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, 
our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV Homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. Alrighty, so this movie came out 10 years ago, and I feel like that's at least long enough for us to warrant a little bit of context. So Harmony, what was going on in 2012 other than the world not ending? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we actually revisited the year of 2012 fairly recently for Spring Breakers. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and something that I brought up in that episode is that this is like a grab bag year of teen media where mm -hmm. it's like the changing of the guard and also we don't really know what we're doing and there's a lot of things that don't fully connect mm -hmm. and there's not like large trends per se. Like there are, but there aren't. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that are coming out this year involve like boy movies like Chronicle or Project X or 21 Jump Street. Okay, yes. These are all firmly boy movies. Yes, and they're all their own unique flavors of boy movies, but all the same. You have things like Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is probably the biggest like teen girl release in a, like, a classic sense, even though it's about a boy. Yeah, but that but movie is girls definitely... Girls liked that movie. It's definitely targeting girls and soft boys. Yes. And I guess you have like more of the, um, the, the younger sort of Disney fair, because you even had things like... The first time with Victoria Justice or, like, LOL with Miley Cyrus, mm -hmm. who would get, like, edgy the following year with We Can't Stop, I think. Yeah, LOL is kind of the start of the Miley Cyrus separation from Disney. Like, yeah. that movie kind of marks that separation. Yeah, so again, it's like this, this, this changing of trends that are happening in this year specifically, because one thing that's going on is that a, the previous year... Harry Potter as a film franchise had ended, or at least should have properly ended, and now we're seeing the slow and hilarious demise of the Fantastic Beasts franchise. Yeah, they, Warner Brothers, I love you, let it die, let it die. <sighs> oh my goodness, it's just, it's great, it's embarrassingly <laughs> great, I love it. it. I just feel like that Simpsons meme of like, stop, stop, he's already dead. Exactly. <laughs> so also this year, Twilight ends. Mm-hmm. And with that, The Hunger Games kind of becomes the last man standing in terms of, like, the book-to-film mega franchise. Because mm -hmm. The Chronicles of Narnia dominated in the 2000s, as did Harry Potter and Twilight and Lord of the Rings. And, mm -hmm. like, these very, very big, like, defining the decade franchises. And, like, you have Percy Jackson still kicking around, I guess. You have The Hobbit, which is... a coming out this year and still does very very well but no one loves it nearly as much as lord of the rings right you have divergence that's about to happen and with the exception of like 50 shades of gray which is its own unique thing far right. removed from the teen genre right this is the last teen oriented like book to film franchise like blockbuster very successful cultural defining franchise so i want to piggyback on that because with this being an anniversary year, there's obviously a lot of people that are doing a lot of writing and retrospectives about The Hunger Games. And my coworker over at Slash Film, Mr. Ryan Scott, who is just king of box office information, 
pointed out something really interesting about the Hunger Games that it's one of those things where I feel like you know it in the back of your head, but until it's like put out in front of your face, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. But the Hunger Games, first off, is like Lionsgate's big moneymaker. Lionsgate as a studio normally exists in kind of like the mid-budget range. Like, I love Lionsgate. I love Lionsgate. Like that's what they do is they support a lot of these like middle ground movies in terms of budget. But they really, really wanted to get in on the book to movie adaptation. And they were like, Hunger Games is our pony. We got to get in on it. Mm -hmm. They ended up like taking money from smaller productions they already had to feed that money into the Hunger Games. Because they were like, if we we do this right, we will have a billion dollar franchise on our hands. And that was a very smart play. Oh, it was like a multi-billion dollar franchise. It was. Like they were, they were very smart. But at the same time, it ended up kind of fucking them a little bit because they have been trying to chase that Hunger Games boom ever since. Mm -hmm. So while Harry Potter and Twilight and all of that ended, the success of the Hunger Games spawned an entirely new branch of the book-to-movie adaptation, specifically like the teens in apocalyptic situations subgenre. That's very much kind of what happened because uh, we ended up with 20th Century Fox immediately following with The Maze Runner in 2014. It became a pretty decent hit globally, uh, made like $348 million, ended up total in the trilogy of $924 million. So like still a lot of money, but like not Hunger Games money. One Hunger Games movie made that much. <laughs> yeah. And then Lionsgate tried to have lightning strike twice and they did the Divergent series, as you mentioned. And the first movie made a decent amount of money. It made 276 against mm-hmm. an 85 million budget. But as we know, the Divergent movies had diminishing returns. And they just abandoned that franchise without a conclusion. Yep. They were going to have a TV movie. And then Shailene Woodley was like, I don't want to do this. And you kind of can't do that without her. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's just some other YA kind of, <laughs> Ryan calls it YA flameouts. We have The Fifth Wave, we have The Mortal Instruments, The Darkest Minds, and again from Lionsgate, Chaos Walking. I've never heard of any of these. Because none of them made money. I mean, even something the following year like Ender's Game, which is a similar sort of flavor but a little more like spacey, that also bombed versus its budget. Yeah, it it didn't do well. And unfortunately, because Lionsgate has clearly been trying to capture the fire once again from Hunger Games... They've been investing a lot of money into big budget movies that fail, mm-hmm. uh, like Power Rangers, Robin Hood, Midway, and Moonfall. Oh. Yeah. All of these are like big, big, big budget movies that did not return on investment. Mm-hmm. So I really hope that Lionsgate accepts the fact that Hunger Games was kind of lightning in a bottle and just focuses their energy on their mid budget releases because that's where they succeed. Because you, at, at this point, it's so hard to compete with the Marvels and the Sonys. Like, it just it, it As just established is. properties? Yeah, and Warner Brothers with, with the DC stuff. Like, it's just so much harder to do, especially because you don't have, like, the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for a budget just laying around the way that they do. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be a multi-billion dollar franchise, you have to be able to compete with them. And they've unfortunately just pushed the the requirements of a big budget movie so much further mm-hmm. than ever before. Yeah. And 
I also just think that this as a trend is currently not feasible. No. Of making a book franchise that successful, which honestly, over the last decade, with the rise of all of the streaming services that are essentially just cable now, that has changed it to now these book series are getting turned into, like, television shows. Right. Like, you have juggernauts like Game of Thrones or mm-hmm. Handmaid's Tale, and they're doing very, very well. Well, some of them also flame out a little bit at the end there, <laughs> but, like, they did very, very well for a long time, and some of these adaptations maybe stick around a little bit longer than they should, or mm-hmm. we stretch them a little too far. Uh, the, very much the, hey, we're turning the last book into two movies kind of a situation that we saw mm-hmm. during this period. Mm-hmm. Which for something like a book adaptation, which has, which is very dense, that makes sense because you can add more to it and flesh out things more than you could in like a two and a half hour movie, which is already very long. Absolutely. And we will get into the movie adaptation versus series adaptation ideas in a bit. But before then, I would love to see what our friend Dango has to say about the Hunger Games, for anyone who has somehow escaped this cultural juggernaut. Okay. Every year in the ruins of what was once North America, the capital of the nation of Pan Am forces each of its 12 districts to send a teenage boy and girl to compete in the Hunger Games. A twisted punishment for a past uprising and an ongoing government intimidation tactic The Hunger Games are a nationally televised event in which tributes must fight with one another until one survivor remains. 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen volunteers in her younger sister's place to enter the games and is forced to rely upon her sharp instincts as well as the mentorship of drunken former victor Hamish Abernathy when she's pitted against highly trained tributes who have prepared for these games their entire lives. If she's ever to return home to District 12, Katniss must make impossible choices in the arena that weigh survival against humanity and life against love. Well, speaking of book adaptations, that was a small novel. Yeah, someone clearly really (laughs) cared about this movie and was like, you get more than a sentence this week. Yeah, (laughs) but I I mean, that's a pretty good way of summarizing where, where we're at. I think so, too. I think that it's obviously a little bit uh, burying the lead, I guess, in that it doesn't really discuss the fact that this book is very much like an introduction to fighting against fascism. (laughs) Yeah, but that's not that's not you can't give away that kind of plot in a synopsis like that, though. That is very true. And you can't handle big themes like that on a friggin Fandango summary. Yeah. And it would also turn away a lot of the people who would need to see a movie like this to get these messages. So I understand why it's written the way that it is. But yeah, that's that's pretty much it. You really want to know how to stay alive? You get people to like you. Oh, not what you were expecting. When you're in the middle of the games and you're starving or freezing, some water, a knife, or even some matches can mean the difference between life and death. And those things only come from sponsors. And to get sponsors, you have to make people like you. And right now, sweetheart, you're not off to a real good start. Alrighty, so let's get started and let's talk about Katniss Everdeen. How do you feel about Katniss? So Katniss is a very interesting character because 
this was the first time that I had ever heard the term of Mary Sue used. Like, Mary Sue, parentheses, derogatory. <laughs> um, like, I was not familiar with that as a trope or, like, a concept until this movie. And that does that's not correct. But, yeah. of course, any, like, strong female lead is like, ah, some Mary Sue. By people who don't actually want to be invested in the story or the character. Absolutely. So for those that don't know, a Mary Sue, by definition, is a female character typically in the teenage years or early 20s that seems to be devoid of any sort of weaknesses or problems. Um, it's like Superman, but for girls. Yeah, I mean, more or less. And this sort of trope ends up happening a lot because after the horrible treatment of women during the aughts where we were using shaming women as a form of currency, i.e. like tabloid behavior, mm -hmm. we got in the 2010s the rise of the strong female character. Sure. And I fully admit that as a 20-something in college being very insufferable in the 2010s, I very much looked for that sort of content of like the strong female character because I was really sick and tired of a lot of these damsel in distress stories. Mm -hmm. I've obviously gotten a lot more of a nuanced opinion on those characters now because there is something very problematic in terms of the quote unquote strong female character. Both can be bad. Yes, because we end up putting women on pedestals and setting unrealistic standards that no one can meet. But in terms of Katniss being a Mary Sue, I don't think that is correct at all because. Katniss has a lot of weaknesses, and she has a lot of issues. Um, yeah, for, for one thing, she's in a competition where she has to kill people and really does not want to. Right, and like you can try to twist that and being like, well, that just proves that she's better than everyone else because she doesn't actually want to kill people. The objective is to kill people. If you don't want to kill people, that's a weakness. Uh, yeah, like it's not helpful if you're like doing upholstery <laughs> right. or you're like a salmon fisherman. <laughs> Like, killing people is maybe not the most useful skill in that one. So it's a positive that you don't want to do that. But in this particular instance, it's bad. Right. And, like, not only that, but Katniss is very stubborn. She's very bullheaded. And um, she is, dare I say, an unlikable character at the start of this movie. Absolutely she is. And that gets into kind of the bigger picture of the world in which we are playing. Because without the full scope of what's really happening and how these oppressive systems are working, Katniss looks like a brat. Yeah. But when you really look at, like, the world that she's been raised into, all of the horrible things that she's endured, the very unfair and unjust treatment of the districts and compared to the capital, uh, yeah, all of her feelings and attitudes are justified. Mm hmm So I will fully admit that I really really gravitated towards Katniss in my 20s. Yes, why is that? Because Katniss, to me, represented the type of person that I wished that I could be. Okay. This person who did not play by the, the rules and did not play by the, the game of common decency and courtesy and politeness just to get through it mm -hmm. because we've talked about it on some other episodes, but you know, I grew up in a, a home that had very prominent parents in, in my community. I kind of had to always be on because I was always being watched. Someone always knew me or knew my family and everything that I did was always a reflection on that. 
So I kind of always had to play the game. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody was being out really rude to me, I couldn't say, hey, fuck off. I'm not doing this because it would absolutely get back to my family and harm their reputation and harm like my dad was in politics and like reputation is everything in politics. Mm -hmm. And it's just really difficult to kind of navigate those spaces sometimes. So seeing Katniss be like, yeah, I'm not doing this and just like not follow through was really, really inspiring to me. And I would be lying if I said that seeing the Hunger Games and how Katniss acted in the face of like all of this adversity radicalized me a little bit. No, I could see that. And I think that that is true for a lot of millennials around our age that watched this at kind of that sweet spot of like your late teens, early 20s, when you're really trying to figure shit out, when you're finally like outside of the home of your parents and you're learning how the world works without any sort of intervening by adults, like you're figuring it out and it's like, wait a minute. Oh, no, no, no. A lot of things are really fucked. And like, obviously, I I grew up in an area that was really diverse. So I understood things about like racial justice and like queerness and, you know, intersectionality. I knew these things. But it's when I was out on my own and like really, really assessing and also living somewhere that was not the Chicagoland area Mm -hmm. really opened my eyes of like, wait a minute. Oh, Chicago sure is sitting comfortably in a sea of red, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it absolutely is. And I think people forget that a lot because Illinois always goes blue because of Chicago. But once you leave, like, the Chicagoland bubble, it is Corntown, USA, my dudes. That's most of Ohio. I get it. Yeah. So, like, living there and seeing people be like, oh, yeah, I've literally never gone to school with a person of color. And you're just like, "How are you out here living like this? Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> um, but, no, it really it was really eye-opening. And this just hit me at the right time. And Katniss was definitely a big part of it. Yeah. But... That works within our kind of context. If you want to go ahead and put it in her context, Mm -hmm. then the fact that she does not want to play the game is a detriment. Yeah. Because it's a little bit of like, oh, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Like, you can be be a bitch, but you can't be that much of a bitch. Like, Mm -hmm. you have to pick your battles. Mm -hmm. And that's the name of this game. Like, you have to play the game at least a little bit because you aren't making the rules. Yeah, that's it's why it's called the Hunger Games. Precisely. They treat the entire thing as a sport. This is a game. This is mm-hmm. entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that's wild. I mean, we'll talk about the propaganda aspect for sure. So Katniss is definitely like our main woman character in this. Like she's kind of existing in a sea of men yeah. throughout this entire series. Mm-hmm. But we do get one other woman. We get my girl and we get Effie Trinket. Oh, Effie. So, BJ, before you really get on your soapbox about this character, I just need to say, as someone who has seen, like, very tiny clips of who she ends up becoming, keep in mind I've only seen this Hunger Games. Okay, we're going to keep her in a bubble here. Yes, we're talking about this Hunger Games. (laughs) I love Effie Trinket because she is the perfect juxtaposition for everything that our characters are going through and having had endured throughout their lives in the districts. Mm -hmm. Because when Effie arrives to do the reaping to pick the tributes for the Hunger Games, she is fucking stoked. She is giddy. Everyone else is lining up like it's the fucking Green Mile. It's drab. Everybody is like kind of dirty. Everyone's clothes are a little wrinkled. Well, it is a coal mining town. Yeah, it's a coal mining town. I mean, let's put it this way. 
Pan Am is based on different aspects of North America. District 12 is like Appalachia. Mm-hmm. We're essentially in West Virginia. Okay. Like, so that's where we are. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. But kind dystopian of. and there's no <laughs> rock music. Yeah, kind of. So you then have Effie who shows up and she's so excited because she's lived in the capital her whole life. She's been fed propaganda her entire life. She does not understand the severity and the destitude that all of these people are living in. Like, she obviously sees it. She's not stupid. Mm -hmm. She knows that they live in squalor. But in her mind, she's like, but this is a great honor. Anyone who does this, this is an honorable thing. And that's why she freaks out over very minute things. Like when Katniss stabs the table. That's mahogany. That is mahogany. Like (laughs) those are her priorities Mm -hmm. because she's never had to want for anything. These are her priorities are entirely different. And she's also the one who cares so much about public appearance. Mm -hmm. Like when Katniss is shooting archery and realizes that they're not paying attention to her. She shoots the arrow through the apple that the pig is holding, like the roast pig, through like where all of like the sponsors are. It's a bold move. It's a super bold move. And like Hamish thinks it's great. We'll talk about him in a second. But Hamish thinks that it's great. And Effie is like, you can't do that. Like that's, oh my God, because Katniss is breaking the rules. She's Mm -hmm. not playing the game. And I love seeing her because you're watching somebody who has kind of lived in an ivory tower the entire time. And even though we don't get to see it quite as much as we do in the later films, we're starting to see the little sparks flickering inside of Effie of like, hey, wait a minute. This is kind of fucked up. Like, what am I participating in? This is not okay. And that to me is very, very exciting. Like, that's a good meaty character in my opinion. I agree. Only really knowing where we're headed. But I also think that you need a character like her in in our cast of characters because she is necessary for understanding, like, the general public that exists in the capital. Because Mm -hmm. the closest you get is, like, bad guys. The guy with the ridiculous beard, Daddy Donald Sutherland, they're bad guys. One's a little more ignorant of what's going on than the other, but Mm -hmm. they're bad guys. Mm -hmm. You get Woody Harrelson. He's not lived there his whole life. He's also a drunk. He also doesn't really like anything thing Mm -hmm. he's a grouch you have maybe like lenny kravitz but he doesn't represent like the mass public right you need this character because this is who the audience is Mm -hmm. even someone like stanley tucci's character of like caesar what's his name flickerman yes even him he's a showman he is not he's he's part of the show he's not Mm -hmm. the viewer you need this character to be like this yes absolutely And I think this is a good point to talk about Hamish. So first off, I think that Hamish is one of Woody Harrelson's best roles. I did learn from reading an interview with the director that apparently Harrelson turned it down at first. Mm -hmm. And he came back to him and was like, no, like, you have to trust me on this. This is going to be like the best thing for you. This role is kind of what sparked the Woody Harrelson renaissance, where he then went on to do things like True Detective and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And he has, like, he randomly calls the director up and is like, hey, man, uh, once again, thank you for convincing me to do that franchise. (laughs) Uh, Because it did. It it opened up an entirely new world of characters for him to play. So Hamish exists as the mentor for Katniss and Peeta, as he is the only living victor from District 12. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's a drunk. And, you know, 
Fair. That's what he is. I mean, in the book, I will say when he's first introduced, he walks into the room and throws up. Oh, yeah. So he's far more messy in the book. He's a, a little restrained in, in, the, in the movie. Sure. But I have so much empathy for Hamish because when you first meet him, it kind of seems like, ugh, what a mess. Because we pathologize alcoholics in this country and in this world we oh, yeah. just he like do. stumbles in hungover and right. is complaining there's no ice yeah so he's like oh hey we don't even have ice where we're from and you're complaining there's no ice and you're drunk right that's immediately like the shorthand for understanding his character exactly but when you like take a second and peel back the layers it makes complete sense that he would end up this way because he is somebody who came from district 12 we've mm-hmm. seen district 12 it's not a chill place to be. There's mm-hmm. a lot of hardship. It's illegal to hunt, and yet you have people that are starving. People are illegally trading squirrels for bread. Like, it's it's bad. Like, the situation mm-hmm. is bad. And then he goes into the Hunger Games where he has to kill other people to stay alive, not unlike somebody who enlists in the military and goes to war way too young. Mm-hmm. So he's clearly got some PTSD. And then he ends up in the capital where he now no longer has to want for anything, has anything that he could ever want. And while like, yeah, that sounds exciting. Like, it's like when people talk about like, what if I won the lottery? The, Every study says that people hate it. Yeah, people people hate it because it's one of those things where if you are not born into that kind of wealth, you need someone to not only like teach you how to use your money, but also how to adjust to that world because like it will fuck with you. Mm-hmm. Like it truly will fuck with you. So he's got everything that he wants. He knows that it's possible to not have to struggle. And yet he knows that everyone that he's ever loved from back home is struggling mm-hmm. and dying. And there's not a lot that he can do about that. And then he's going to like get paraded around as the victor and have to visit all of these other countries and basically be like, hey, what's up? I killed someone that you cared about. Like that shit sucks. No wonder he's an alcoholic because I highly doubt that there is a lot of therapy in the capital. So you've got to do some self-medication. Yeah. Um, I also think this character probably has like a great deal of, of, of guilt because – He's the only person to ever win from their district. And every single year, he has two young people come to him and say, we need your help. What do we do? And he has to say, you're probably going to die. Because guess what? District 1, District 2, District 3, maybe occasionally like, I don't know, number 7 or something like that gets thrown in the mix and that will win. But they're training their whole lives to kill you. You're going to die because everyone other than me has died. Sorry. Yeah. And he never asked for that. And yet you have these people like pleading because no one else is going to help them. Like, sure, we'll give you like dessert and parade you around, but we're not helping you. Yeah. The the parade of tributes and everything that goes on to that just feels like a very, very long last meal. Yeah. It's everything about how they treat these characters is what at least my understanding, because I'm not maybe the best thing on, like, ancient Rome. But it feels like Roman gladiators. Yeah, that's very close. Let's watch them get mauled by lions and kill small, starving peasants. Ah, what heroes. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they might die. Oh, tragedy. Bring out the next one. Yeah. It's very, very similar to that, because they talk about the pageantry of it all. Because this isn't just, 
hey, we're going to throw you in a field and you're going to kill each other. It's like, no, we're going to make a big spectacle of it. There's going to be a parade. There's going to be Miss Universe style costumes that represent your district, which is very much a thing that happens in the in the Miss USA and Miss Universe pageants. Mm-hmm. And it feels in a very weird way like we're dressing you up for the slaughter mm-hmm. because that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. So in the case of someone like Hamish, I understand where how he got here oh yeah it's completely understandable yeah like you're coping you never asked for this you didn't ask to be in the hunger games in the first place yeah no one does it's random yeah it's a lottery the only person to ever volunteer from that district was katniss he did not choose this Mm -hmm. and now he's just having this repeatedly thrust on him every single year for what i assume is like the last 30 years yeah and that sucks but okay hold on this, this is something I actually wanted to address when we got to Katniss because this matters to me. There is one change to this movie that, like, popular memory or popular consciousness has mm-hmm. that messes with me and or that, that, that bothers me. Okay, what's that? So when Katniss volunteers after her sister gets selected, mm-hmm. she has this very shrill, horrible <laughs> scream. Her I volunteer? Yes. Which... Also, um, Jennifer Lawrence is doing a phenomenal job in this movie. Oh, yeah, she's great. Especially because this movie is largely dominated in its, like, last hour, hour and a half with not that much dialogue. Yeah, she's just great. Yeah, so she's she's outstanding. But what I hate is that every trailer, every TV spot, every, like, parody, everything you've ever seen from, like, that specific clip is different than it is in the movie. And mm-hmm. it's different by, like half a second but that half a second makes all of the world of difference it hits differently when you like trim it for like a commercial or something where she says i volunteer there's a like a second pause i volunteer as tribute and she's like way more like she's she, she's like planted her feet and she's confident and she's go- gonna she's gonna do it. at least she's putting out the the air that she's confident mm-hmm. in that moment when you cut that off doesn't scan as dramatically it scans as awkward and clunky and the timing seems off it yes absolutely because that first i volunteer i mean the peacemakers are trying to hold her back because mm-hmm. they think she's about to like rush the stage as prim is heading towards i'm the sure stage. that's happened before yeah absolutely of course it has we see it in other districts mm-hmm. but when she then like firmly says like no essentially like hey i'm of sound mind and i volunteer as tribute mm-hmm that break between those two emotional outbursts are so important because we know like this first I volunteer feels like impulsive of like, no, I have to protect her. Mm-hmm. And then like the, no, I'm serious. Like you need that beat. And when mm-hmm. you suck it out for a TV spot, yeah, it feels super awkward and clunky. And what makes that moment so wonderful is that the Hunger Games is really, really good at executing storytelling through silence yeah because when they're lining up for the reaping it is eerily quiet like you can hear people walking through gravel Mm -hmm. and you can hear the beeping of peacemakers like headsets and stuff yeah in in a more modern movie there would be an overly dramatic score yeah there would be a big score or there would be like (laughs) something something really somber yeah and then the big moments would be like and then the second like you know katniss volunteers the whole group would go (gasps) 
And like that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. It is so quiet. And then the only thing you hear is Effie like, oh, this is wonderful. And like clapping. How exciting. How exciting. Our first volunteer. And like that makes it so much bleaker. Yeah. In that moment. Because like these movies are so much more bleak than people remember them being. And I feel bad because obviously like ladies first. So that happens. And then like PETA gets drawn. It is so like anticlimactic because this is a movie that is not about men. Like it's no. so dominated by men, but it is not about men. No, like PETA, it's always ladies first. So PETA has to follow Katniss every single time. Uh-huh. And it it really feels so much like PETA is an afterthought. And rightfully so. I kind of don't give a shit about PETA. I, I don't really feel care about Gail. Similarly, and I know a lot of people re- like really, really love Peta and in, really, really love Josh Hutcherson. Especially in this movie, I'm sure there's a lot more going on in subsequent ones. Where there he's are given more to yes, do. Yes, in there this are. movie, I don't care about Peta, and also him spending presumably two hours painting himself to look like a rock in the middle of like a life or death situation is dumb. <laughs> it looks dumb. Conceptually, it's dumb. I don't like it. Yeah, I. There's a lot of important establishing that's done in this movie for PETA, but I'm with you in that I kind of don't give a shit. But one thing that I will say about PETA that I think is very well on display in this movie is that he is the anti-Katniss in a lot of ways. Sure. In that he really wants to play the game. Because when they first arrive into the Capitol off the train, all of the Capitol citizens are like waving and exciting. Like it's like when you see those old clips of people like welcoming ships coming in mm-hmm. where they're like the whole town shows up to like welcome people who made it across sea and whatever. Yeah. That's kind of what's happening here. And Peter's in the window waving, having a great time. Like, Oh, check this out. Look how cool this is. Oh, he is loving the pageantry of this. Oh yeah. He's like all about it. He's like, Oh, this is so cool. Look at this. Well, especially cause he knows he's going to die. So enjoy it while you can. Right. Whereas Katniss, the this is the only way I can describe it. Frequently, when I was in high school, like I went to a very underfunded public high school, but we competed in a district for both like sports and speech team and whatever with very wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Like the John Hughes, the literal John Hughes high schools were yeah. the people we would compete with for like speech team and stuff. So like, yeah, I had to do prep work in the library from the breakfast club. Like that's a real thing that I've experienced. (laughs) And like, while that is cool at the same time, visiting our neighboring schools in our district was always a painful reminder of how much we did not have. Yeah. Because you would go to these big schools and it's like, wow, there's no like metal detectors. (laughs) Number one, uh, number two, they have state-of-the-art computers in their computer lab, not some, like, leftover shit that, like, you have to, like, smack sometimes to make work. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, all of the chairs match the desks, and all of the desks are all the same desk. It's not just a weird hodgepodge of desks from other eras and styles and times because we have to make sure that the classroom has enough. Okay. Oh, wait. They actually have an auditorium because my high school did not have a fucking auditorium, which meant all of our theater stuff was done at a gymnatorium across town at the old high school from the 70s. -hmm. Cool. And like there were definitely classmates of mine that would get starstruck by it because, oh, wow, this is so cool. Like, oh, look at this. This is great. 
But then I would think like, no, these people get this every single day. Yeah. This is like, this is like a fun vacation for us. They get to live like this. And we're back there with like bullshit. Yeah. That's even, not fair. They don't even know how good they have it. They have no idea how for good me, they have it. it was Tuesday. Yes, absolutely. So like, that's what's happening is like, PETA's like, whoa, check it out. And Katniss is like, this is fucked. Like, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. These people have no idea what they're participating in. They have no idea what it's like for us. Fuck them. Yeah. And like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, BJ, I'm I'm fairly certain I remember this being a thing on Tumblr, but it's been, you know, 10 years or close there of that because people were either conditioned because of Twilight or they it's just how the movie is set up. There was definitely like Team Peta versus Team Gale. And mm-hmm. Peta is in this movie as a wiener and Gale is there. <laughs> sort of. Like it, it cuts to Gale throughout like the back end of the movie just to remind you he's there and he's going to be in future movies, I guess. Yes. I mean, they both do have much more prominent roles in the later films. But in this one, you can very much tell that the marketing wanted to reignite the Team Edward, Team Jacob Twilight debate with Team Peta and Team Gale. Controversy sells. Yeah, that. And like the thing is, there's a huge aspect of it that we'll talk to when we get into the actual games. People love a love story. They do. They really do. And that's definitely part of it. But something that I wanted to talk about is that for the film's 10th anniversary, Gary Ross, who directed the film, sat down with the Hollywood Reporter to do kind of like a retrospective on the movie. And um, Gary Ross made uh, another movie we've talked about on the show. He made Pleasantville. Oh, mm, lovely. Mm -hmm. Which I think is lovely, but also at the same time, like weirdly feels like... Thematically appropriate for him to do those two movies? Yeah, it's it's very odd, but that's very much how it feels for me. So in this interview, he says that though on the surface, the story can be viewed as an action-packed tale, underneath lies a harrowing premise and intimate emotional truth that Ross has piqued his interest in directing the film in the first place. I think one reason this franchise was so successful is that this generation feels like they are fighting for their survival all the time. And that survival is far from certain. Yeah. That really like resonated with me and makes a lot of sense to why this movie was so popular with millennials. Because around 2012, like we're we're past the economy crashing. Yeah. Like that has happened. Uh, we are people who grew up in the wake of both Columbine and 9-11 and mm-hmm. like a lot of shit. And we started realizing that the world we had been promised was bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of, hey, go to college and you'll get a good job and blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. All yeah. of that's bullshit. Yeah. Um, climate change is happening and everyone that's in positions of power is doing literally nothing to stop it. Yep. And we were in a very weird, complacent place because it was 2012. So we're in the Obama administration. So there was a lot of hope and there was a lot of positivity but also realizing, like, this one man can't actually change everything. Yeah, but even, like, 2008, Obama ran on hope. That's what he wanted. And that's a little bit of hope. We're in 2012 now. Mm-hmm. That hope that it was in 2008, we don't have that hope anymore. Now we're just kind of like, well, can't get much worse, can it? And th- then it does. And then it does. Yeah. Four years after that, it fucking does. But I feel like at that point, we were voting because we were just like, well, we just don't want to go backwards at this mm-hmm. point. But that idea of like survival was definitely like a thing that's very prominent. Oh, yeah. And um, 
I, I remember. <laughs> I, I fled my hometown for the prosperous shores of Cleveland, Ohio, the God, North Coast. What a fucking bleak existence when fleeing to Cleveland is the better option hey, than where you are. It was on an upswing in 2012. Thank you. It had gotten all that Marvel money from them filming like Avengers and shit there. I know. So the city was like, whoa, we matter. <laughs> I just don't want them to change me. How would they change you? I don't know. I'm gonna turn me into something I'm not. I just don't want to be another piece in their game, you know? You mean you won't kill anyone? No. I mean, you know, I'm sure I would. Just like anybody else when the time came, but yeah, I just keep wishing that I could think of a way to show them that they don't own me. You know, if I'm if I'm gonna die, I wanna still be me. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I just can't afford to think like that. All right, so we're getting into the actual games. And this is where the propaganda arm starts to rear its ugly head. Like, we've seen a little bit and pieces of it. Oh, no, we're seeing behind the behind the scenes now. Yes. So when we are first sort of introduced to the propaganda, you know, it's it's at the, the reaping where they show the video to explain, like, why they do this every year. And it's a very nice way to give us exposition. War. <laughs> Terrible war. <laughs> But once we get into the actual capital, then we start getting the commentary of Caesar Flickerman, Mr. Stanley Tucci, who is, first off, just reveling in, in everything he gets to do. He is having the most fun. I, first of all, I love Stanley Tucci and everything he pops up in. I'm happy to see him back on this podcast after Easy A. It's been yeah, a hot sec. Also, Donald Sutherland, good to see you back. <laughs> but everything about his character including like the very toothy way that he speaks feels like what if we take the old Stephen Colbert character and just make him a little, you know, mm -hmm. he's, he's a little gay uh -huh. <laughs> and the whole capital is a little gay. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, very much so. But once we get Caesar Flickerman involved, two things happen. One, yeah. we are fed exposition on like the fake bullshit aspects of the book like tracker jackers and mocking jays things that are not real sure. um that's a great way to explain it because he's explaining it as if he's telling an audience like oh those are tracker jackers and mm -hmm. this is what they do like that's very clever and that's very smart it's not a ham-fisted way of being like ah exposition yes but what is even better about that is now we are getting a first-hand look of how the propaganda works within the capital mm -hmm. because it is so easy to paint every citizen of the capital as like an awful person. Like how can they live in all of this excess and luxury while people are suffering? It's because they have been told for their entire lives that the people that live in the other districts are bad rebels who did bad things. And this is their penance for what they did. And that this is a great honor that they are coming to die. Mm. Like this is them participating in something that is good. 
and they don't understand like they don't understand that this is bad because all they've ever known is propaganda. Are you willing to die to better your life? Right. Like and like that's the thing is that's how they view it as and it's really hard I think sometimes for people to understand what it's like to exist somewhere that is filled with propaganda because we were starting to see this after Russia invaded Ukraine because you would see people in like message people that were streamers like Russian streamers on on TikTok or mm-hmm. on Twitch or whatever and be like hey how do you feel about what's happening in the Ukraine and almost universally all of these young people are like yeah no this is the right thing to do because they've been told forever that this is the right thing to do and that the Ukrainians are rebels and like all of these things so they don't understand like what's really happening because they live in a world of propaganda well fuck man i remember when we had to go to war in the middle east i remember post 9 11 that's the shit they told us exactly weapons of mass destruction yes we were all fed like this horrible like propaganda give them freedom yeah and it's i mean and i i hate fucking going back to this time period but like it's it it's true but when people ask things like well, how did the Nazis rise to power? How did how were Hitler you? How was that a thing? And it's like, because people were just inundated with propaganda. Like, this is what they were told. And when you're told something for so long, you start to buy into it. Why do we think QAnon is so popular right now? Because if you're just fed this shit constantly and validated, you start to believe it. Mm-hmm. And like, why would the capital believe anything other than that? Because they're the ones that are reaping all of the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. So why would they ever stop to question, hey, this is a little unjust and not right? Because they're the ones that are getting the favors. It's like, hey, yeah, you, it, this is your birthright. Like, you were deserved this. You were entitled to this. They're not going to stop and question that until it is thrown in their face with a big neon sign, or in this case, a really cool, powerful girl in a dress that turns into fucking fire. Like, literally needed to set something on fire to be like, hey, dummies, pay attention, you've been lied to. Yeah, like, I don't remember the exact way that it's described by Donald Sutherland in this movie, but you need, like, a little bit of hope. Like, in the case of this movie, Katniss is a match. And a match itself is not going to light a whole room. It's not a problem. It's just it's just a match. But you have a match and a powder keg, and now things are dangerous, and now things are a problem, and that's what Katniss can be. Yeah, and I think that it's also very important that we talk about President Snow, and I think that's a good segue for that. Yeah, sure. So Daddy Daddy Donald Sutherland. Still as, as handsome as ever. Oh, so handsome. <laughs> so Donald, Even though he's supposed to be old as shit, and he's like a bloated, corrupt, evil man. He's still so he's hot. still hot. <laughs> But Donald Sutherland actually sort of campaigned for this role. What? Yeah. So he really wanted to play President Snow. And when he heard that they were making the movie, he reached out to the director and was like, look, dude, I really want to play this Wait, character. Donald Sutherland just read The Hunger Games for fun? I don't know why he did. Maybe it was because he knew the movie was coming and he was looking for a role. I don't know. Those maybe his details. grandkids like him. They're like, Granddad, yeah, maybe. I like this franchise. Let me talk to you about my world. I mean, maybe. But he thought that the the villain was like an incredible villain, which he is. Like, President Snow is by far one of my favorite, like, villains in any sort of, like, teen franchise. Because here's the difference between President Snow versus, honestly, like, 90% of the people who exist in the Capitol and even to some extent are directly involved in the Hunger Games. What makes President Snow different from Caesar Flickerman or Effie Trinket or Seneca Crane or any of these people? Seneca Crane's the guy with the beard, right? Yes. Okay. That's Wes Bentley. Gotcha. (laughs) President Snow is 
fully fucking aware of what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Everybody else is sort of just complicit in the game because they've been fed propaganda and they just, this is just what you do. Like, this is a great honor. This is part of what you do. Mm -hmm. President Snow knows exactly what they're doing. Like, one, this is a punishment. Mm -hmm. And two, this is a way to keep rebels in check. Like, because he wants to maintain the status quo of the Capitol. He wants to keep these other districts living in destitute. He doesn't want there to be another rebellion because he was actually there. He remembers it. And he would like to continue his fascist regime. Like, that's what's happening. But everybody else who's involved, like, it's like they can't see the forest for the trees. Like, they don't fully understand what's happening. Because we see that a lot whenever Seneca Crane is meeting with President Snow about the actual game. And he's like, oh, yeah, we love Katniss. That's why we scored her an 11. Because that was such a bold move, Mm -hmm. shooting the apple. And he's like... You made her look too powerful. Yeah. You can't let, like, her people, and when they say her people, what they mean is poor people, Mm -hmm. marginalized people, oppressed people. They can't have too much hope because too much hope is dangerous. Yeah. And what he means by dangerous is they will get inspired to rebel again and try to take down everything that I've built, and I will lose power, and I don't want that. They'll seem strong because it's like, oh, Katniss is strong, and she's just like us because she's an every girl. Oh, I get it. And, like, who doesn't love an underdog? Not President Snow. <laughs> Donald Sutherland does not like an underdog. <laughs> and like, and you see that on display because like you can see like Seneca doesn't fully understand what he's participating in because he's like, this is great. What are you talking about? This is the best TV it's ever going to be. People are going to love this. They're going to love that she's an underdog. They're going to love this love story. And he's pretty much just like, you need to take care of it, which is his way of saying, fucking kill her. Dare I say that in the case of Seneca Crane, he is not intimately aware of the fact that entertainment isn't always just entertainment. Correct. Sometimes there's deeper meaning to entertainment. Abso-fucking-lutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that's another aspect of this that makes it so, like, relevant to me is because this movie also came out in a time when we were starting to get far more of, like, everyday people heroes Mm -hmm. thanks to things like at the time it'd be vine but like vine and instagram and whatever like normal people could get plucked out of obscurity and turned into superstars and turned into like the faces of movements i think a lot about like david hogg the kid from uh marjorie stoneman douglas the parkland shooting he's just a kid who happened to survive a school shooting but he was like no no no, we're doing something with this mm-hmm. and now he's sort of the face of like a movement yeah. or you think about like Greta Thunberg like you have these teenagers that are just kind of existing but because we now have a world of constant surveillance their message can be spread to everyone mm-hmm. and that's what Katniss is doing yeah and I think that just over the last 10 years we've seen how activism can exist in online spaces now versus say like 2012 where like the best platform probably for that was Tumblr. It absolutely was Tumblr. And I mean, TikTok is sort of picking up the mantle in terms of like the Tumblr cringe, but at the same time also in like the Tumblr radicalization that absolutely happened in the 2010s. Yeah. And it's not flawless. Um, You know, sometimes there's maybe not the most well-researched things, but like the intentions are pretty good for the most part. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's happening so much more easily because the issue that you have with, like, say, the Hunger Games is this is a North America problem. This is not a global issue. And I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where it's like, ah, the Hunger Games will be real. Like, all of these things that exist are real. Yeah, we're never going to get to that place. We're never going to get fully dystopian. However, things that go on 
happen in pockets. Like, we talked about how this isn't Battle Royale, but if you want to compare it to anything, especially like that's come out since it, this is Squid Games. Oh, yeah, this is very much Squid Games. This happens on a smaller scale for a smaller audience. This is things happening in pockets, but people becoming more aware of them because they can have platforms and people are Mm -hmm. seeing things and they're not able to ignore them as easily because everything is filmed. Like, Mm -hmm. the revolution is televised, dare I say. Absolutely it is. This is a very good example of the revolution being televised. Mm -hmm. So when we're finally in the games, it plays the way that you assume it's just people killing each other. Like, there's that. Alliances. It's like war. People killing people. Yeah. There's alliances that are made. That is just any reality TV show that's ever existed in the history of ever. I've seen Survivor. We've seen Survivor. We've seen RuPaul's Drag Race. We know how these things work. Sure. Um, but what is very interesting is we start to see how rigged the game is and has always been. Mm-hmm. Because Katniss plays the game correctly, gets as far the fuck away from everyone as humanly possible, and President Snow is like, no, 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 no. She's too far. Uh, and Seneca Crane's like, cool, I guess I will set half of the field on fire and push her closer to the people. Which is really funny because, like, as a genre of, like... Video games, that happens in Battle Royale games where, like, the playing field will shrink to force players near each other. Uh-huh. And, like, that's happened in, in a very popular genre since that over, like, the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. Which is, I'm not going to say Hunger Games influenced that, but I'm not going to not say that. <laughs> but, like, Katniss isn't playing the game right. She's playing the game in terms of, sur- she's surviving well, but she's not playing the game. Correct. You have to participate in the game. Correct. She is not she's making, making for- bad TV. Yes, because if Katniss had her way... She would have stayed as far away from humanly possible as everybody and survived in the woods, which is something she knows how to do, mm-hmm. being from somebody from District 12, and just waited for them all to die out. Sure. That's what would have happened. But they are like, no, 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 that's not entertaining. Like, that's mm-hmm. not fun. So they push her closer. And when they push her closer, she ends up kind of living in a tree uh, because she knows that they're coming after her because – I feel they like force it's, her up a tree. Yeah, they force her up a tree, but it's like a blessing and a curse in that before the game start, they get ranked by sponsors, like mm-hmm. in terms of their abilities and they're given a, a whatever. So because she is rated an 11 out of 12, she's a threat. So mm-hmm. the careers know we got to target her and get her out because if anyone can take us down, it's going to be her. Mm-hmm. So we got to get her out and we got to stay together and get her out. Um, and PETA joins that crew. And PETA joins that crew because, again, PETA knows how to play the game. Mm-hmm. He's not that skilled. He's very strong, which we see because he can throw heavy things. But he's he can't survive like this. Mm-hmm. There is a line that, like, every time it like kind of guts me a little bit where he admits to Katniss that he talked to his mom before they went. And she, his mom says... District 12 might actually have a winner this year, and she was not talking about her son. Yep. <laughs> like it's fucking cold. Oh, man. <laughs> that just, like, hurts. And the best part is because, spoiler alert, PETA does survive with Katniss. Like, PETA didn't do shit like the whole I know. Game. He, he just didn't. doesn't die. PETA just doesn't die. And, like, that's also something that's really interesting is that this is the first time where we're getting this, like, YA sort of, like, love story thing where it is not about how the girl needs the guys. Because, like, in Twilight, like, Bella needs Edward and or Jacob. Yeah. Candace doesn't need shit. Nope. If anything, these men are holding her back. Peter she certainly don't need is. Them. Well, in this movie, for sure. Like, <laughs> they they have a bigger role in the in the other movies where they feel a little bit more important. But sure. th- this movie... We'll get movie, to those one day. Yeah, this movie is absolutely about how men ain't shit. <laughs> and that's kind of great. <laughs> what the hell was that? 
don't talk to me and then you say I have a crush on me? You just say you want to train alone? Is that how you want to play? Stop huh? it! Stop it! Let's start right now! Hey, he did you a favor. He made me look weak. He made you look desirable, which in your case can't hurt, sweetheart. He's right, Katniss. Of course I'm right. Now, I can sell the star-crossed lovers from District 12. We are not star-crossed lovers. It's a television show. But we're in the games, and Katniss is really just focusing about survival. But everything changes in the games when Katniss makes her alliance with Rue. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of feelings about Rue. I have more feelings on Rue, having watched it this second time. Good. Because the first time, I like when we sat down to watch it, the first time I was like, okay. Because I was in a room full of people that were like, oh my God, I'm so sad Rue died. But they were talking over so much of the thing that I'm just sitting there going, I mean, I guess it's a bummer, but like she's not in that much of the movie. And I like didn't get most of her character building on her brief time on screen because I was distracted by people being so loud about so many things. I just didn't, I did not understand. And now watching it like in a more chilled and uh, thoughtful environment where Uh I'm actually paying attention. Yes, I have much better feelings about Rue. Yes. So first off, it's important to also note that when they announced the casting for the movie and Amanda Stenberg was announced as Rue, there were a lot of people that were fucking pissed Mm -hmm. because they, in their minds, had always assumed that Rue was white, which If you read a character who is sort of like the pinnacle of the revolution and the perfect exemplification of kindness and like just good hearted and innocent and worthy of protection and your brain defaulted to a little white girl, you're telling on yourself first off because the book is pretty explicit that Rue is black. Um, So there's that. But I love the character of Rue and I especially love the relationship between her and Katniss Because it's very easy to view their relationship as Katniss is the protector of Rue, which to some extent she is. She is bigger. She is more skilled. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But Rue is not helpless. No. Rue saves Katniss. Rue saves Katniss. And I think people like love to gloss over that detail. Without Rue, Katniss probably would have died. But Mm -hmm. it was Rue's idea to drop the hive of the tracker jackers and kill some of the people and get them to leave the tree. Mm Mm-hmm. Rue also was helping Katniss with the plan in order to explode all of the resources so that it would force all of the the career tributes out. Mm-hmm. Like, these are all very, very important things. Katniss definitely wants to protect Rue and feels this, like, need to protect her. But it comes from a place of, like, sisterhood, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really important because there there is a criticism to be made about the white feminism of the Hunger Games because a revolution starting because, like, a white girl is directly impacted something because, like, here's the thing. Had Prim not get reaped, I don't know if that's the correct term, but had... (laughs) Repped. Had Prim not get chosen for the Hunger Games, Katniss would not have volunteered as tribute. Nope. She would have just aged out of the Hunger Games reaping system and went on and lived her life killing squirrels, and doing whatever. But because it directly impacted her, now she is starting revolution. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is some white feminism criticism to be made for that. 
But in terms of her relationship with Rue, a lot of people try to paint it as like this white savior thing. I've never read it that way. Maybe that's my own white privilege I, I speaking. Mean, it doesn't feel like it's intended to be that way. It doesn't feel like it's intended to be that way. It doesn't feel like, oh, this white lady has to protect this like small black girl. It feels like this adult-esque figure, because she's 16 and I think Rue is 11. She's just protecting somebody who's smaller. Well, in the case of these two... Rue is a more capable version of what Katniss's sister would have been mm -hmm. because Rue actually is able to handle herself you know, fairly well, especially considering her like age and small size. Yeah, she's but, a very good climber and a great hider. Exactly. But Primrose Everdeen, mm -hmm. she wouldn't have stood a chance. This no. is this she was this was her first year eligible and she would have been picked off like immediately. Mm -hmm. This is like a, a stand-in for what that would have looked like had Katniss never been there. Correct. And this is Katniss protecting essentially a surrogate for her sister yes. in the Hunger Games. Yes, absolutely. And that's how it's always felt for me. Um, so the two of them, you know, join forces. They protect each other. It's very sweet and very lovely because it shows that even in the bleakest of situations, the most dire of circumstances – there's still something to be said about being a human and mm -hmm. like showing kindness and empathy and love and compassion to a fellow human yeah. who's also just trying to survive. And unfortunately, baby Jack Quaid is a piece of shit and kills Rue. And uh, Katniss, he's the first person that Katniss actively kills. Like she, without a second thought. Without even hesitation, just arrow straight to him, knocks him. Mm -hmm. um, but when Rue dies, that is when everything changes because one, Katniss mourns her because she's genuinely affected by this. Yeah. Like there, she has been surrounded by death and destruction this entire game. This is like, no, 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 this is wrong. This is fucked. Mm -hmm. And instead of just leaving her there, she takes the time the, like the valuable, valuable time that she would need for her own survival and uses it to adorn Rue with flowers mm -hmm. to make sure that like there is some sort of like symbolic or what have you. There, there's respect to her life mm -hmm. and there's there's grieving involved. And, you know, she she figures out where the camera is in the tree. She gives the three finger salute. And that is the moment that kind of really start shaking up some of the other districts. District 11 immediately is like, fuck this, and mm -hmm. goes after the goes after the peacemakers, tears down the scaffolding, uh, knocks out the TV. They're not having it. I have to say that watching this in 2012, it's like, oh, this is a dystopian future movie. Kind, cool, whatever. Watching this movie in 2022 hits really differently. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a one of many examples in this film where it hits differently, where it's like, Huh, this revolution was sparked by the primarily black district going, we've had enough. Yeah. Who'd have thought? And it is especially prominent when you think about it in 2022, when you think about like the uprising that happened following the death of George Floyd, mm -hmm. where there were riots and quote unquote looting and all of these things and broken windows and all of these things that happened in the streets. How is that any different? Then District 11 saying, no, fuck this, after they watch one of their own, an innocent life who did not deserve this, who did not ask for this, get killed in such an unceremonious and just awful way mm -hmm. in front of millions of people. For entertainment. For entertainment. So the fact that, like, 
people can watch the Hunger Games and be like, hell yeah, District 11, tear it down. That's right. But then at the same time, be like, um, you should be really careful. Like, that's a target. What did they do to you? Like, fuck off. Go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually fuck off into the sun. Yeah. So that's how I feel about that. <laughs> so in a, in a lot of very specific ways, The Hunger Games to me is weirdly way more relevant now than it was in 2012. Well, that's because it's become less of a work of fiction. Yeah, because we had a, a very lovely brush with fascism that we are still trying to escape from. And every day gets bleaker. <laughs> yeah. But like, I think watching this at any point post, like, 2016 would be different. But with, like, each year, it's felt more and more relevant. Yeah. Watching this after the uh, the, the uprising for racial justice and watching this after the insurrection mm-hmm. is wild as hell. Yeah. And watching this, as as we're literally seeing, like... The old, crusty, Donald Sutherland-type characters in this movie be like, what if we try to squish all future rebellions by making laws that basically say trans kids are illegal? Yes. Okay. That, and that's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of, like, something that's most relevant, like, at this exact moment. Yes. Okay. So, no, this is actually perfect, and I'm really glad that you brought this up because this has been on my mind since we watched it. Sure. So, the entire point of The Hunger Games... And the reason, like the specificity as to why they use children, like 12 to 18 year olds, is because they are trying to actively squash down the future. Like they are showing you your most vulnerable and your futures mm-hmm. are, are going to be destroyed. Like sure. that is why yeah. they use them and not adults. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what's happening right now in this country. Obviously, using trans kids is the easiest example because I've seen a lot of people that have theorized that the reason that they're going after trans kids was because they tried to go after trans adults with bathroom bills and those all failed. But if you do anything under the guise of quote-unquote protecting children, it's a lot easier to pass. That is true, but that's not the intent. The intent is that they are trying to squash out future progressives. They are trying to squash out a future world where people are more liberated and more liberal and more progressive-minded because that scares them. That yeah. scares the status quo. Don't say gay, yeah. Yes, and we see that with President Snow. He is fully aware of what the youth are capable of, and he knows that if they were to all join forces and bound together and fight back, that they would lose. Mm-hmm. Like, the people in power who put forth all of this shitty legislation – are doing so because they know that if there's a little bit too much hope out there, they are fucked. And that all of like the power that they have will be taken from them. And they are terrified of that. Mm -hmm. They are terrified of the youth. Like, I don't care what Lindsey Graham likes to say. That motherfucker has TikTok. Whether it's his own account or whether he's scrolling, he has seen what Gen Z says and does. And he is fucking scared. Mm Mm-hmm. Good. Fuck Lindsey Graham. <laughs> yeah, Lindsey Graham can suck eggs. Good. I, I hope care. he's scared. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's like that's very much what we're seeing, and it's very alarming. Like when this movie came out, obviously Obama was in power, and was he a perfect president? No, he did a lot of plenty of fucked up shit the way that everybody else ha- has done a- as a president. Yep. But he was not an active fascist the way that like Donald Trump was. So you sit there and you watch President Snow, and it's very easy in 2012 to paint him as kind of this like cartoonish 
bigger than life kind of villain. And it's like, wow, what a what a real awful person. And then you watch it in 2022 and you're like, we fucking elected that guy. Mm-hmm. We put a guy just like that in power. And we say we because even if we didn't participate in it, our culture did. And mm-hmm. you can't just say, oh, we don't claim them. That's not how that works. Oh, I didn't vote for him. Yeah, you can't do that shit. That's not how this works. Yeah. So it's one of those things where it's like, no, we fully put President Snow in power. We we did that. That's crazy. Like, that's insane to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, politically, we're basically just voting to not go backwards. Mm-hmm. We're not really going forwards. We're just trying to not go backwards at mm-hmm. a rapid pace. Yeah, that's kind of what's happening right now, which is why everybody is so frustrating and why it constantly feels like something is always burning just below the surface but hasn't quite exploded yet. Well, yeah, just fucking old white men. Yeah. I think that you're if you're an old white man whose net worth is many millions of dollars, you shouldn't be in charge of people's lives. Yeah, because y'all don't know how we live. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> But speaking of people not knowing how they live, and I don't know how these people live like this because it's beyond me and I would hate it. Why the fuck is the capital so gay, though? Why, <laughs> why are all these rich people like, ah, yes, let's let's co-opt like very androgynous high fashion pieces that are like reek of peacocking and flamboyance, which like I, in my brain, before you even say anything, in my brain, I can justify it as like, oh, art is like high art. High caliber art and fashion is usually influenced by gay men. Mm-hmm. So like that's just the look. Mm-hmm. That's that's what class and extravagance and money looks like. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, though, why is it so gay? Okay. So obviously, on like a purely like visual level, it shows a huge juxtaposition between the districts, which are mostly like beige and brown and like muted tones and dirt and filth. And these are modern future powdered wigs. Yes. And like this, everything, everybody has extravagantly colored hair. Everything's bright. Everything looks like, like all of their hairstyles look like they came out of Edward Scissorhands. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we're dealing with at the Capitol. So in a purely like visual language aspect, That's a great way to show the distance between what's going on in, like, the poorer areas versus what's going on in the capital. That makes sense. In terms of, like, why everything reads so gay, the way that I have always interpreted it is that true liberation is beyond the binary in all facets of life. That's why you have somebody like Caesar Flickerman who looks so flamboyant and loud and bright Because when you want for nothing and when there are – honestly, when there are no rules for you to have to abide by, then the roles of society break down pretty pretty quickly and pretty swiftly. Mm -hmm. And, like, obviously, like, it's very easy to paint everyone in the capital as, like, massively flamboyant and, like, very androgynous. But that's not necessarily true. There's always like aspects of it. Like well, when we, I think they really ham it up when they're like going to the theater. Yes, exactly. Like everything becomes heightened. But like you see people like Cinna, who for the most part dresses like pretty masculine. Like he's usually sleek and that, all that's black. That's Kravitz, right? Yes. Ah, his his slight eyeliner. But then yes, he <laughs> will then have bright gold pointed eyeliner and like that is something that to me is already like beyond a a gender role, and I think. That that's like kind of beautiful in a way because it's like, oh, yeah, these people like because they have literally nothing to worry about in their lives, they don't have to worry about fitting gender roles like that's so cool. But they're doing so at the expense of the suffering of a lot of other people. And that's what makes it fucked up. Yes. Um, first of all, I just want to say that like Lenny Kravitz has been one of the most gorgeous men for like 30 years. He still is. God damn. Yes. 
This version of Lenny is a little boring, even with his gold eyeliner. I know. It's the hair. It's the hair. It's that his outfit. He's a fashion dude. And yet his outfit is so plain, especially compared to everything else around him. Mm-hmm. It's just like, Lenny, you you deserve better. You look better like any day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, but that aside, like a parallel that I want to actually draw, and this is something that I'll probably never get to talk about on the podcast because I don't see us ever talking about the birdcage. But it's this idea of like utopia. Mm-hmm. particularly in relation to like queerness or like queer expression mm-hmm. um i love the birdcage but i also hate the birdcage and it's not nathan lane's fault it's not robin williams fault um it's it's how this movie scans for me personally in like a, a modern lens i have issues with that movie because i mean the, the core principle is like oh hey uh robin williams as you know playing a gay character pretend to be straight mm-hmm. nathan lane a lot harder for you but pretend to be straight Right. Robin Williams was at one point married to a woman and had a kid. Like he lived a straight life. Mm-hmm. And yet he's totally been so immersed in going to like Milan and Egypt and I don't know. Just world Monte traveling. Carlo, yeah. wherever the fuck he's going, where he just travels to all these places and lives in his like lavished, dick filled <laughs> apartment above his drag nightclub. And he's completely lost touch of reality. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know how to even pretend to be straight anymore. And like, that's good. Like, live your life. Be you. But why do you get to do that? Because you have money. Mm-hmm. You have this extravagance that allows you the freedom to do this. Right. And fundamentally, I love that. But personally, I don't. Yeah. Because I see that shit like being in Los Angeles where... I could see someone with, like, a full beard and a shaved bald head and, like, extravagant makeup and, like, a full-length sequin dress walk down the street and with the utter confidence that nothing bad will happen to them and they probably have 80,000 followers on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then people look at me and go, oh, but you, though. Mm -hmm. People can look at drag queens and say, like, oh, you're so glamorous and you entertain me and you're confident and I love you. But people can look at me and go, oh, but you, though. Yeah. And... It's not as intense in California as it was in Cleveland, because regardless of my defending of Cleveland earlier, I love Cleveland. Cleveland as a whole does not love me, and I learned how to cope with that, and that's fine. Right. But in order to get to a place where people can have the confidence to stroll down the street wearing whatever they want, it costs like four or five times the rent it did in Cleveland. Yeah. There is a price for safety and liberation. There's a bar of entry for freedom. And that's gross. Financially. And that's fucking gross. And that's just in relation to queerness and how I'm drawing this parallel. Mm-hmm. But that exists regardless. Mm-hmm. But then in some instances, it also doesn't matter how much money you have, depending on what intersection you fall into. Because mm-hmm. we have examples like Ryan Coogler, who directed Black Panther, mm-hmm. went to take money out of his bank account and was assumed to be a robber mm-hmm. because he's black. And how could a black man ever want to request this high amount of money he Mm -hmm. must be robbing and like that is fucked up like Mm -hmm. also like this kind of connects to the rue thing like no one in the world is more marginalized than like black women like obviously black trans women black disabled trans women like you can add on intersections that make it more marginalized but as like a general concept that is true yeah and that is something to acknowledge with rue because as much as katniss is dealing with issues of living in like what is essentially the Appalachian aspect of Pan Am. Yeah. She's still white. Mm-hmm. And there is still a lot of social capital that she earns with being a white person in the Hunger Games and 
therefore people in the capital are going to want her to survive. Mm-hmm. Because there are not a lot of black people in positions of power in the capital. Like, there are people like Cinna. He gets to be, like, a fashion guy. He gets to help in that way. But, like, most it's of... It's pretty white. He, it's pretty white. Mm-hmm. The people who are in charge are pretty white. And I think that is also something to acknowledge that, like, that's part of fascism. Like, white supremacy and fascism are two sides of a BFF necklace. Mm-hmm. That's how that works. <laughs> yeah. And, like, if you break it down... In terms of, like, the districts, districts one, two, three, whatever, like, those are essentially the coastal states. Yeah, the, like, they are the district equivalents of the the liberal coastal bubbles. Exactly. And, yeah, sure, you're not the capital, but you're, like, one sniff away from the capital. Yeah, you're, your you're proximity sh- to the capital is why you are already favored before anything even begins. Correct. And so... It all just hits in a really ugly way that is correct. Like, I don't dislike it. I I don't, I'm, I'm mad about it, but for the right reasons. It's got yeah. good heat. Yes, it does have good heat. <laughs> exactly. I'm mad about it, and I should be because I want to see an uprising. I want to see a rebellion. Yes. And I want to see the next Hunger Games. That's, that's good storytelling. Yes. So throughout the games, uh, we think we know one thing, and then randomly, because of Hamish's idea, he's like, we're going to promote this like love story thing because we want them to survive. And they make the announcement that, hey, if you're both from the same district, then two victors can happen. Which only applies to two surviving teams at that point. Correct. Um, but that then motivates like Katniss and PETA to both survive. Mm-hmm. It motivates them getting sponsors. But something happens in the game that I think is really interesting is so... As we discussed, Peta kind of ain't shit in this movie. Nope. He's Katniss, he's there. He only survives because Katniss takes care of his ass. He's almost a detriment in the climax. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> um, but Katniss kind of plays into this romance plot that Hamish and Peta like pitched at the beginning before the games even started, mm-hmm. and she does so in order to get sponsors who are going to send medication to help Peta stay alive. Mm-hmm. But what's so funny to me is like you have this moment where the two of them are sharing and it's kind of romantic and they kiss and whatever. And we get a clip of Gail back in District 12 watching it and looking sad. And it's one of those moments where like you know that this exists because like we have to set up like this weird love triangle thing for marketing purposes for this movie. But Gail looks so sad and it's like, dude, she's trying to survive. If she doesn't play this game, she's going to die and you're not going to have anyone to look mopey about. (laughs) So shut up. Get over yourself. I'd rather her die than for her to be with a different man. Like, that's pretty much what he's doing. And it's like, shut the fuck up, Gail. Like, come on. Oh, Lord. <laughs> so like that moment drives me crazy. Um, but after, you know, all that happens and we get closer to our climax, two things happen that I want to point out. One. Peter almost eats berries and kills himself. Peter almost eats berries and kills himself because he's a fucking dum-dum. <laughs> um, and Katniss then keeps the berries, which come back later because it's Chekhov's poisonous berries. Mm-hmm. But she at one point gets attacked by Isabel Furman. She gets attacked by the orphan. Mm-hmm. Um, and because she is a cocky asshole, starts talking about how her group killed Rue. So then Thresh, the other representative from District 11, kills the shit out of her. Oh, yeah. And spares Katniss. Snaps her neck. Yeah, he, he spares Katniss. But he does so not for her, but because she took care of Rue. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is your one freebie. This is your one freebie. 
Um, unfortunately, Thresh ends up getting eaten by the horrible CGI man bear pig. Oh, they look beasts. so bad. Like the, that's one of the things that's aged the worst about the this CGI movie. in this is not great. No, but it's like a seventy-five million dollar movie or whatever, which it's like eighty, I think. All the same, like whatever. That's I don't know if that that five percent is a lot of that money went to the capital. Let's be real. Exactly. So it's fine. It's just there's some establishing shots or like some CG crowds or like arenas or these fucking dogs. That look booty. And that's the part of the movie that's aged the worst, unfortunately. Yeah. Especially I mean, on probably nicer new TVs. Yeah. And I mean, like, I can kind of justify, like, the weird dog things looking funky because we know that they are being created by the game maker. Like, they're essentially, like, holograms that can actually kill you. They're holograms that eat. Right. Sure. So I can kind of sus- suspend my disbelief as to why these don't look real. I'm like, eh, whatever. No, but, um, but everything else. But like, I mean, during... This is consistent through the whole movie. Yeah, but like during like, yeah, during the Capitol Parade when they, they have they, their suits on fire, like the fire looks jank as shit. They did like, the best they could with After Effects. Yeah, they sure tried. <laughs> they, they tried with the budget they had. I'm not talking too much shit. I'm just saying like, I don't know. 2012 came out three years earlier and has spectacular CG but it also, also that had movie sh- had like th- two and a half times the budget. Yeah, it had way more money. <laughs> so, eh. so we get you know we get to the end and uh, they end up killing Kato. Who hey Kato's here again. We talked about him in our Final Girls episode. Oh, He's yeah. the boyfriend who's there yeah. in that movie. <laughs> so he was the Peta of that movie. Yes. <laughs> um, so he ends up dying because he gets fed to the man bear pig beasts and gets eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as they are about to be announced as the victors, the capital is like, LOL, JK, only one of you can live. Now fight to the death. And Katniss is like, yeah, no, fuck that. Um, we have berries and let's just die together mm-hmm. because this is what's going to happen. And, like, what's funny is, like, Peta's like, just do it, just kill me. Like, he's so, like, <laughs> ready, like, yeah, I'm not coming out of this. I think he had accepted before they even went in he wasn't winning. Oh, yeah, 100%. So he's like, man, just make it, make it quick. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and Katniss is like, no, 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 we're not playing this game. And so then, because they have to have a victor, mm-hmm. uh, they both are about to eat the berries that will kill them. And then it's like, wait, nope, okay, no, you can win. Okay, you can win. Yeah. And, like, what's funny is that it is very much panicked, which means the entire, like, capital and everybody watching it, they're also hearing the game maker go, just kidding, nope, you can you can both win. Uh-huh. Like, that is broadcast. And that moment to me, like, is so important because that message being broadcast tells all of the districts, like, no, they really are just making shit up as they go along. Mm-hmm. Like, they are getting to see behind the curtain in ways I don't think they've ever gotten to before. Yeah. And that is uh, really, really telling. So they end up winning. They survive. They, you know, go back. They meet President Snow. And President Snow is very clearly not fucking thrilled mm-hmm. because Seneca Crane now has to die. Yep. But what's so wonderful is that because, again, this movie does so much with silence – it's not killed in like a big dramatic way. He is left in a room with the berries that Katniss and Peta were going to take to kill themselves. And President Snow is basically being like, well, you didn't kill her, so now you have to die. And I'm going to replace you with Philip Seymour Hoffman in the next movies. <laughs> the the, the, the capital does love its flair for the dramatic. Oh, yes, they do. They love the drama. It's good TV. It is good TV. <laughs> and that, my friends... Ends part one of the Hunger Games. Is the 74th annual Hunger Games. <laughs> that was my closest attempt at Caesar Flickerman. I hope you enjoyed it. You did a pretty good job. Thank you. But Harmony, the question remains. 
The Hunger Games is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? Or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? Sitting down to watch this, I was pretty confident that it was going to be a yes. I'm more confident in my yes now. Ah, sweet. So, yeah, no, this, I'm, I'm, not that I'm going to watch them anytime soon, because there is something alluring about waiting until we do it on the podcast, which we're not going to probably do it for a while. Yeah, it'll take some time. But I am excited to watch more Hunger Games movies. Beautiful. Mostly because they, they are a fascinating time capsule. And also seeing how they hold up now is really stupendous to study. Mm-hmm. Like, as entertainment, like, it's perfectly fine entertainment. But for what it is today, that that's more interesting to me. That's the part that intrigues me. Yeah, I like Baby's First Fascism Rebellion movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it obviously meant a lot to me, and I know that it meant a lot to a lot of other people. Something important to keep in mind is that this movie was a cultural phenomenon, not just in America, but across the world. Uh, following these movies, uh, a lot of activist groups in places like Thailand and Myanmar, they would use the three-finger salute. They would use the Mockingjay whistle as ways to show solidarity in protests. Mm -hmm. And that's really fucking powerful. Mm -hmm. And I like that it was used for such good. And there's there's something to be said about the power of fandom when used in positive ways. You can enact genuine change. Like, I mean, we shit on Harry Potter all the time for obvious J.K. Rowling and just all of those reasons. But a lot of, like, the Harry Potter fandoms, like, they do a lot of really great philanthropic work. And I love that instead of doing philanthropic work, the Hunger Games inspired actual, like, teenage rebellion. Mm -hmm. That's really cool to me. Yeah. And... I don't know. It's 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 such a weird movie to revisit and just to see how much differently everything hits now that we've had our own version of of that. And obviously, mm -hmm. systemic issues have existed forever. I don't want to act like this is a new thing. It's <sighs> not. But the way in which it's been portrayed is a lot closer to Hunger Games now because of the mass surveillance and mm -hmm. It's just, it's just fascinating. Because we've made it to the future. We've made it to the future. And it's it's just very strange. And I mean, I'm also glad that Jennifer Lawrence is is on a swing back. She kind of got Anne Hathaway there for a while yeah. where she was too kind and relatable. She was too perfect. And then everyone went, fuck you, you're cringe. Which is like, just let people, okay, she likes talking about pizza and interviews. Calm down. Yeah. Like, she's fine. Whatever. Again, Jennifer Lawrence didn't play the game and got punished for it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, friends, I think that takes us out on The Hunger Games. Thank you, as always, for listening. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at The Sunset Prom. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Veloci underscore trap underscore tour. And huge thank you, as always, to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use their song title for our theme song. Harmony, what cool indie band you want people to check out this week? I think this is my first ska recommendation of the year because oh, I did shit. so many last year and I don't know if people appreciated it, but like ska is a great genre, damn it. One of the reasons I'm plugging a ska album this week is because ska has fundamentally always been an anti-racist genre. Absolutely. And I think that's great. So the album that I'm plugging this week is called My Checkered Future by Eichlers. It is a hyper ska album where we are melding together hyper pop and ska into a short but sweet like... 20 minute package and uh yeah eichler's is doing some really inventive stuff within the genre that no one has ever done before and a lot of the stuff is about just fun 
but also like is wildly politically active. So I recommend checking out, you know, the new album as well as like past singles because Ike does like some really cool shit across the board that is only going to get more interesting as their career goes on. And I look forward to that as well. Just just like the Hunger Games. It's perfect. <laughs> Beautiful. Alrighty, friends. That takes us out. And thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Um, bye. Bye. Thank you for your consideration. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.